Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hey, y'all. It's Sally here, eager to share with you why I'm so excited for this year's Feminist Book Club Readathon and why I want you to join us. Last year's readathon was one of the highlights of my year, not just because I read a couple of my favorite books of the year, but also because it felt like such a gift to set aside a couple of days to simply be with myself and make progress on my physical TBR. It was my first feminist book club readathon, and I wasn't sure what to expect, but the entire weekend was a blast. The biggest win really, and this is my pitch to you for signing up, the biggest win is that it was such a fun way to connect with new people with similar reading taste and hear what books they were loving, gush about the books that I was loving. There's just a special kind of magic when you find someone who likes and dislikes a lot of the same books as you. I always feel good getting book recommendations from people like that and sharing my book recs too, because then I know they'll likely be a big win. And like, what if you're the one to recommend me my new favorite book of all time? That's my selfish reason for wanting you to sign up. But like, what if I recommend you your new favorite book of all time? Less selfish. But no, seriously, the Feminist Book Club community is just full of really smart, hilarious, thoughtful humans. And the readathon is a really great showcase of that. Last year when I participated, I wasn't yet a contributor to Feminist Book Club. I wasn't even a member. I was a fan and I wasn't sure what to expect, but the community element of the readathon last year is actually one of the reasons that I even applied to become a contributor because I was like, well, the world's on fire. It's all falling apart. Where do I want to be? <laughs> Who are the people I want to surround myself with? And the readathon just really showed me like, oh, these people. This is this is my vibe. These are my peeps. So, you know, if you like the podcast, if you like the blog, If you like the books that we read, if you like anything about any of us at all, you would really have a good time. This episode is brought to you in collaboration with Nao Partners, Inc. Nao Partners, Inc. is a commercial real estate, urban planning, and community engagement firm based in St. Paul, Minnesota. They believe in developing generative results in the community while addressing the pressing challenges currently facing urban built environments. Their work and belief system is rooted in putting people first and applied empathy. Their approach delivers thoughtful, human-centered solutions for clients and cultivates sustainable relationships. Learn more at neopartners.com. N-E-O-O partners.com. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for the Feminist Book Club podcast. I'm here with author Dr. Dolly Chook, and we're going to talk about her book, A More Just Future. So we're going to head and get to it. So I'm curious to know, you don't see a lot of anti-racism books, specifically from the psychology and psychological terms frame. Why did you think it was important to conceptualize people's anti-racism journeys with psychological concepts. Yeah, and thank you for having me, Taylor, and thanks for that awesome way to start our conversation. Yeah, you know, it's funny. You know, when you think back to 2020 when there were some stunning, like, eight out of 10 of the the New York Times bestsellers in a particular week were 
books in some way tied to anti-racism or so, some unprecedented moment during that moment. And I remember looking at all of them and being surprised that none of them had uh, grounding in the behavioral sciences, like, for example, psychology. That I had already, my book was, the, A More Just Future was already well underway at that point. So it, it wasn't what motivated my book, but it was what helped me see what, how my book could contribute to that deep literature. It, it's so important that we have books by activists. It is so important that we have books by corporate leaders. It is so important that we have pe- books by people with lived experiences. All of those books are essential. And I think what rounds it out is also having books that have the underpinning of science. What evidence do we have that certain approaches do or don't work? What evidence do we have for illustrating the problem? What evidence do we have for what's possible when we, you know, create more equity in our neighborhoods, our communities, our families, our our companies? What does that look like? What does that unlock? Like showing evidence for all of those things, I think is it's not persuasive to everybody, but there are some people for whom that is exactly the inroads. No, I totally get that because um, I've done work and see with survivors of sexual violence and something that where I used to work, something that was very helpful for some survivors is having that like psychology, like what's going on in my brain Yes, to explain what's happening. So I think the conversation about like, okay, what's going on in my brain when I get so defensive about privilege or like my role in like perpetuating racism, like what's going on in my brain? And that can help a lot of people kind of feel comfort and just even knowing about what's happening in the brain can help start shifting those processes a little bit. So true. So true. So why did you think it was important to focus on working toward an anti-racist future by learning from history and how racism is woven throughout the fabric? Yeah, that was not a a distinctive place for me to start. I'm a social psychologist. I'm trained to sort of think about individuals as they relate to people in their, you know, daily lives. And I have no, no, training in history beyond high school, really. (laughs) Even that, I have to say, I had great history teachers, but I don't think I was a great history student. I sort of crammed what I needed to cram for the test and then kept it moving, you know, after that. But what I realized the older I've gotten, and and there was a particular moment as a parent that that was really eye-opening, is that we are thinking about the past all the time. We are thinking about our families and our origin story and our country and our holidays and our nostalgia. And we are sitting in that all the time. I had this period when my kids were younger where I was reading to them every night. And in fact, there was a a year long stretch where I read to them every night from the Little House on the Prairie book series by Laura Ingalls Wilder, where she writes about her family in the 1800s, and as sort of they and many others were part of this colonizing force sweeping across what is now the United States and building homes and overcoming incredible odds. And she, and she wrote these stories that millions of us have read and loved and maybe even enjoyed the TV show. And I remember reading these stories to my kids and feeling 
like they were so connected to these stories and this family and these these this little girl and we even took a family vacation where we spent a week going around to like Desmet, South Dakota and Walnut Grove, Minnesota, and like saw the places where they used to live. And while doing that, I remember standing literally on a prairie with my kids, literally in prairie dresses. And which, by the way, they would not take off. They wore them all week. They were so obsessed, as were we, because it was so cute. It was like under this beautiful blue prairie sky. And I remember the thought kind of swimming through my head of, wait a minute, whose land was this before the Ingalls built their little house on it? I mean, that was in the 1800s. This land didn't just show up in the 1800s. And of course, the answer is there were vibrant Native American communities that were living on that land and had for many, many, many hundreds maybe thousands. This is where my lack of history will show. Many, many, far longer than the United States has even been an entity. And I didn't know what to do with that thought. I did not know what to do with the emotions that came up for me as it dawned on me that I had not given my children that historical context. I, I literally talking to them about this topic every single night for a year, I had not sort of said, you know, actually they weren't the first ones. I mean, I think there was a couple of comments in the book where I went, well, that's not a nice thing they just said. The only good Indian is a dead Indian. That's not appropriate. You know, so I rejected some obvious things, but I did not contextualize. And the emotions that came up with me in that moment for me were things like shame and guilt and anger and disbelief and denial and did not know how to do deal with that. So honestly, I just put it aside. We kept the vacation going as it was. And in the decade that has followed since then, I've thought back to that moment over and over again as other things that are part of the story I've told myself and my children and that I've been told about my country have been debunked. The Tulsa Race Massacre, the GI Bill being for white veterans, not black veterans, Juneteenth being something I didn't know about until a few years ago and it revealing that I somehow forgot or forgot something the right word like in 1776 we hadn't even gotten to the civil war yet how could that have been an independence day like you know so these these moments brought up those motions again and again bubble 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 and finally it got to the point where i was like i think i need some help dealing with these emotions if i'm to truly unlearn some of these things that i thought were true that maybe are only partially true or not even true at all and I looked around for a book that did that, and I, I couldn't find one. And so then I was like, uh, I'm a psychologist. I might be have to. I may have to be the one who writes it because that's what we do as psychologists. As I started, we deal with how people deal with others, and this is how we deal with kind of others in our past. Right, like Toni Morrison said, like if you don't see the book that you want to read, you have to write it. So something that you referenced as being like a protective factor in your book is coming back to our values and how that can really help us reckon with our past. What specific American values were you referring to? Yeah, which values it is, I think it's up to the individual. So the research I was calling upon is that on what they call values affirmation. And this is research that shows that when we can center ourselves in the things, sort of what our why is, 
then it allows us unconsciously to to be immunized essentially against some setbacks and some 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 barriers that are going to come up and they've done studies like this of new students in college particularly first generation college students or students of color who may not be getting a lot of signals around them that this is a place where they belong this is a place where they can be successful but when they are given the opportunity to write you know for 30 minutes once or twice a semester this is not like a really hard hitting intervention about what values they they prioritize they found that they had a greater sense of belonging and greater academic performance. So here, the values that I imagine people might think about as Americans is they might think about things like equality. They might think about things like freedom. They might think about things like independence or resilience. Like These are things we often hear associated with American values. And my thought was that by reflecting on those, we sort of take ourselves out of the the daily tensions we're feeling as a country of who says what, believes what, denies what, and up to sort of what is the what is the value we hold. And I think that can give us the resilience we need when those emotions I described that I was not very resilient towards, you know, those stormy emotions, I just was like, I'm out, to actually sort of stay in that and say, okay, Tell me more about who used to live on this land. You know, that 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 would have been a moment where I might have been a bit more. Yes, I definitely agree that, like, coming back to, like, what's important definitely kind of provides that cushion of dealing with these feelings. And I want to talk about shame for a second. In the book, you talked about the usefulness of shame and like as controversial as sometimes Renee Brown can come across to some people, like I love Renee Brown and I uh-huh. love her research around shame. But in your research and expertise, what do you think drives people from that shame-driven defense to shame-driven growth, as you kind of referenced in your book? Yeah, absolutely. And then we can bring guilt into that too, because guilt is particularly mobilizing, actually. Well, We know that guilt is when we feel bad about something we've done or not done. And shame is when we feel bad about ourself as a whole. And it it seems to make sense that when it's something bad, we feel bad about something we've done or not done, that feels like a more local, tractable problem than I just feel bad about my very existence, which is more what shame looks like. And so guilt tends to lead to more action and shame tends to lead to us not taking as much action to remedy the situation. There is research by Becky Schomburg and others that shows that that actually maybe shame, we, we threw out the baby with the bathwater. That's a terrible phrase now that I say that. I had never thought about it. We'll come up with a better one. Maybe we, we've, we've, we've thrown out the idea prematurely because with shame, what the latest research shows is that even if I'm feeling bad about myself as a whole, if I can see a power to fix it, just like with guilt, then I then shame can actually actually also be quite mobilizing. So I think the idea here is that if we feel like there's nothing we can do to do better, we shut down and we we look for all the ways to protect ourselves, like minimizing it. Or I guess it's not that big a problem, or it wasn't my fault anyway, or blame someone else. 
versus we can see and kind of craft a way, well, I could learn more about this. I could apologize. I could do better. I could this. I could get some development. All these are things I could do. We, we can sort of break out of that shell. Right. And I kind of really resonated with that about just like the difference between guilt and shame and how shame often renders us like immobile. But like if we want to do better and want to be better, like that, how that can catalyst kind of change within us. Yes. I think what resonated with me the most, I think the biggest lesson I took away from the book was like the idea of paradox. Yeah. That's just something I've been personally grappling with for the last few years. And I'm curious to know, like, with the rise of, like, social media and the culture that comes out of it, like, that that great thing, cancel culture, and I was for maybe bigoted people to spew hate, et cetera. Like, yeah. with all of that kind of going on in society, how can we embrace paradox? Yeah. I mean... Well, let me, let me, let's, let's flip that. How, what happens if we don't embrace paradox, right? I think we find ourselves stuck. We find ourselves, you know, trying to like shove that, you know, if you try to do a jigsaw puzzle and you think that piece is going to fit, it doesn't, it won't like click. You don't get that little satisfying. And so you kind of like, you know, just pushing it and it's not going. Our brains are wired at the most fundamental level, to want things to fit, to want coherence to the story, to straighten the picture on the wall, to, you know, have to slide in that jigsaw puzzle piece. So when things don't seem to fit, our brain will try to force it just like we do with the jigsaw puzzle, but our brains are also pretty sophisticated. And so rather than struggling to fit or forcing something to fit, we're forcing ourselves into a binary of like, America is all good or America is all bad. You know, that's forcing ourselves into a binary or America's past is all good or all bad. What the paradox mindset does is actually liberate us. It liberates us not to say everything is good, not to say in the land of cancel culture that, you know, that they're there is no one should, who should be canceled or anyone can be canceled at any time. It's to say that we, it is a complicated world. Human beings are complicated. History is complicated. Inconsistent statements can both be true. It allows us to say that. And what the research says by Wendy Smith and others, which by the way, they have a wonderful book out called Both and Thinking, just came out this year, which is a really lovely, accessible look at this idea of activating a paradox mindset. It's Their work says that when we do allow it to be true that American history is beautiful and American history is brutal, and I mean, they don't say that paradox, I'm saying that paradox, that we are more creative in our problem solving, we are more resilient in our adaptation to challenges, that we, we, we are better equipped to deal with this world we live in. I'll just close by saying in terms of cancel culture, I mean, cancel culture in itself, its own paradox, I, I get asked about it a lot. I think both things are true. I think cancel culture is toxic and I think cancel culture is necessary. Because we we embrace the paradox in this household and it's both and. Both. Love that, love that. 
So I noticed that you you didn't use terms like white supremacy a lot while writing this book. And you also reference Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, in that she avoids using terms like that in favor of using like undercast and things like that. What was the idea behind kind of like word choice? And did it come from a place of trying not to use strong terms to isolate some audiences? Yeah, I am not against using strong terms, and I'm very grateful there's people who are willing to do that. I'm usually not that person in any sphere of my life. I mean, other than yelling at my kids where they'll say, well, you're very comfortable using strong terms with us. You are not going anywhere. But other than that, I, I think my particular temperament and style leans more to meeting people where they are. And that's where... I, I think I have the most unique skill set to offer. And so my my readers, my my followers tend to look for someone who's going to be frank with them, but in a way that will frank while holding their hand a little bit. And so I don't tend to use the stronger language not because I'm against it, but because it's not sort of what I'm typically known for. I do have some, you know, for example, I use the word whitewashed early in the book, and then I don't use it later in the book. And I wish I could tell you that was a very deliberate choice. And I've been asked about it by a couple of interviewers. And I, I probably came up with some sort of ad hoc explanation on the fly when asked about it. But I think the truth is that I, you know, and it, it you write books over long spans of time. And at one point when I was writing, I was sort of feeling a bit more in your face about it. And at other points, I was not. And the inconsistency didn't get caught in editing. And, you know, and that's why whitewash shows up in chapter one, but not in chapter seven, you know, that or, or something like that. That's an interesting point. It just like noticing about where we are psychologically like where you are psychologically when writing this book and like again embracing that paradox of like yes like you are like you have the background expertise and you're sharing this expertise with others but at the same time like how you feel (laughs) is definitely going to have an impact on like the final product and I think that's beautiful about like human research and human science in general because like we like you were saying earlier our brains like strive for things to like make sense and like we claim that all of this objectivity and even in the book when you're referencing referencing history we we want to believe all of these things are coming from like a strict objectivity like everybody's experiencing the same reality but like that's a beautiful observation on like even your process of writing this book about just like that's just where I was at the time and it's changed throughout like my book writing process and so my next question is like what else did you learn about yourself while writing this book Oh, God. I think one thing I learned is, you know, I have this, I keep saying, oh, I'm not a history buff and not that good a history student. But I think I'm, either that's changed or I had some kind of misguided definition in my head of what that meant. 
because I think I am interested in history. Like I noticed, for example, that I like, I like TV shows. I don't know if you ever watch This Is Us, the TV show. Okay. So, so if for any of the listeners who, who might not be familiar, Taylor, Taylor just gave me a big smile, by the way, while, while she nodded. So I take it she's a fan, as, as was I, where was on. And one of the things they do in This Is Us is they time shift a lot. So it's a show about um, a few generations. And you see those generations in any given episode, you would see, you know, generation one, two, three, or four at different ages of their lives. And so you time shift back and forth, back and forth, and lets you see like where seeds were planted. You know, you'll see Jack as a father, and then suddenly you'll see Jack as a child and how he was treated by his parents. And suddenly you can see, oh, that's the connection between how Jack parents and how Jack was parented. And that thread becomes visible. And I guess that's what history is, right? Like it's it's really making like it's 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 sort of taking the invisible ink of today and making it visible, you know, shining the spy pen so you can see the ink because it's the past is all over the present. It's everywhere in invisible ink. We just can't always see it for that. And so I love that kind of stuff. I love time shifting. I love making the invisible visible. So I think I, despite having great history teachers in my past, somehow had told myself I wasn't interested in history. And I think I've discovered I kind of am. I love that because like I was not, I was not a history kid either, oh, yeah. but I had this one teacher in junior of high school for AP US history. And like the way he taught was just like phenomenal. Yes. And I ended up making a four and that kind of like gave me a big head. I was like, mom, I think I'd be a history major. She was like, do you actually like history? And I took my first history class in college and I was just like, mm, I'm not going to be a really? But like you said, like, like later in life, seeing those in th- invisible threads and that invisible ink yeah. and like how history like leaves its stamp on everything. And even everything. thinking about like how your personal history, like your family, your ancestors, yeah. like it may not have made the history books, but it's still history and how that leaves an impression. Yeah. I totally agree. Like that's, I'm going to write that down. What you just said. I'm putting paper here. You said it was like stamped on everything. Now I love that. Yes, our personal history, our national history, our community history—it's everywhere. I agree. It really is. So that is the end of our time. It went by so fast. But definitely before we leave, I want to give you the opportunity to let people know where they can find you and your work on. The internet. Oh, thank you, Taylor. Well, my name again is Dolly Chug, and it's spelled D-O-L-L-Y and then C-H-U-G-H. And my website is dollychug.com. And I have a new book out called A More Just Future. You can get it anywhere you buy books. And I also have a free newsletter if you want something free and bite-sized and once a month. It's called Dear Good People. You can sign up for it on my website, dollychug.com. And it's it's fun and zeitgeisty while still kind of, I, I, I somehow managed to talk about things like Wordle and Pickleball and and This Is Us. So I actually had a whole issue. This is us. And then I, I try to land it with, and here's the lesson we can take from that that ties to how to be a more inclusive person. So 
it's, it's a pretty popular newsletter and that might be of interest to some of your listeners. I love that. Well, thank you so much again. And we look forward to reading your book and getting that newsletter with all of the, the, the fan mail of all things psychology and success. I love it. Thank you so much, Taylor. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature, oh. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.